Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. More U.S. dollars are on their way to Ukraine, and more U.S. intel on Russia has made its way into the public sphere. U.S. officials say Russia's president is being kept in the dark about what's happening with his own invasion. So what does that mean for peace talks? We'll get into that. Plus, here at home, President Biden has a new budget. It's over 100 pages and worth a whopping $5.8 trillion. What made the cut and what got the chopping block? Also, White House phone logs have an unexplained gap of more than seven hours on January 6th. What was happening then? And will a certain House special committee find out? William Brangham is a correspondent for PBS NewsHour. William, welcome to 1A. Hi, Sarah. Naftali Ben-David is White House editor for The Washington Post. Naftali, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And Jessica Taylor is the Senate and Governor's editor for the Cook Political Report and a former NPR colleague. Hi there, Jessica. Welcome back. Hey, it's great to be on with you, Sarah. I want to begin today with Ukraine. On Wednesday, President Biden said the U.S. will give Ukraine $500 million more in direct aid. The funding could go toward humanitarian aid, military support, or regular, regular government operations. Biden is also making moves to offset the war's impact on gas prices here at home. Today, I'm laying out a two-part plan, not only to ease the pain that families are feeling right now, but to end this era of dependence and uncertainty and to lay a new foundation for true and lasting American energy independence. Parenthetically, just imagine if, in fact, Europe didn't have to count on Russian oil, if they were energy independent. It would change the nature of so much. That was President Joe Biden speaking at a press briefing on Thursday. Naftali, I want to start with you. What exactly is in President Biden's two-part plan here? Well, the uh, the money that is the, the $500 million that he told President Zelensky this week that he was going to give him, one of the interesting things about it is that it isn't necessarily tied to arms and it isn't necessarily tied to humanitarian aid. It's just a, a direct budgetary transfer. And I think it's really remarkable how much money the uh, American people seem to be willing to support us giving to a war that is pretty far away and doesn't directly impact the lives of, uh, of Americans. But he seems to have the support for that kind of thing. And uh, I think it's in part because there's, in a way, such a clear personification of the hero and the villain in this conflict. You know, we have the young, t-shirted, heroic leader in Ukraine and the sort of aging dictator in his lair in the Kremlin. And maybe those things shouldn't matter, but I think that they do. And it's one reason that this has resonated and made it so possible for Biden to offer this aid. And then as far as, um, you know, the gas prices, obviously, that's a big political problem for the Democrats. uh, And he had to show that he was taking action. One of the interesting things about his comments when he announced the release from the strategic reserve is he really wanted to give Americans other people to blame beside himself for the rising gas prices. So he he called it Putin's price hike any number of times during his comments. But he also blamed oil companies, you know, for what he said was putting their own profits over their consumers. And in general, I think he wanted Americans to feel like when they pay more at the pump, 
it's because they're making a sacrifice for democracy and for this war, uh, rather than just that it's an economic nuisance. Uh, he wanted to frame it as being in, in the interest of a higher cause. Um, so I think, you know, taken together, it was a pretty carefully thought out strategic package of help for the Ukrainians and sort of reassurance for Americans. Well, let me ask you the question I think a lot of Americans are asking at the pump, which is what impact is this likely to have on gas prices and how soon? Well, you know, there's not, <laughs> there's not a lot of evidence that it's going to have immediate impact. I mean, a million barrels a day, you know, for six months sounds like a lot. And of course, it is in some way, but it's also, you know, something like 1% of the global output. I think, you know, markets can be affected, you know, just by psychology. And so if it seems like things are being done to increase production, that can make a difference. But I think a lot of this, I don't want to call it a totally political move because I think there is some substance there, but it's just to send a message of, you know, to Americans that, that Biden gets it. You know, every time he talks about this, he says words like, I get this. When I was a kid, you know, my family had to sit around the kitchen table whenever the uh, gas price of gas went up and figure out what we were going to do. So I think a lot of this is about sending a message to the American public, but also to the global markets that he's on this, that he's doing something about it. But in terms of direct Im immediate impact on prices, I think that's probably likely to be pretty limited. And William, the White House has signaled a broader move toward energy independence, clean energy, and reduced dependence on oil in the U.S., as we just heard. How does this plan fit into those efforts? Well, it's, it's a, this is a, a funny thorn in the president's side in the sense that rising gas prices, we know, are politically toxic. And with the midterms coming up, the president wants to do everything he possibly can to make people not think about the price of gas when they're filling up their cars. Cheaper gas, on the other hand, is not considered a long-term climate change strategy. The idea is for that we use less gas, and price is one of the sole indicators that seems to determine how fuel-efficient vehicles are that Americans buy. So there's a conflict there. There's also the larger issue of the, 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 the president's Build Back Better legislation, which is, as we all know, dead on arrival, contained large numbers of climate change provisions that largely because of the opposition of the entire Republican Party and Senator Joe Manchin, those things all fell out. And so there's been talk and some of my colleagues have reported that the president would like to reintroduce standalone uh, climate change legislation in coming months. But there's not a lot of action on that in the House or in the Senate right now. And so the, the president's stuck in a bind. He wants to be a climate change president to the surprise of many environmentalists, but he's fighting this war overseas and he's got rising gas prices and a looming election. Those things are in direct conflict. Moving back to, to President Vladimir Putin of Russia, his top advisors are reportedly keeping him in the dark about the true status of their Ukraine invasion. That's according to U.S. intelligence reports that were declassified this week. And one listener tweets, Putin's generals may be afraid to tell him he's losing in Ukraine, but does he not see Western news reports? Uh, Jessica, I want to put this to you. I mean, what is known about the kinds of details that Putin's advisors are allegedly withholding and why they might be doing it? Well, I think it's because Putin is the type of person that if you bring him bad news, you could pay a price. I mean, this is a man that has threatened people, that has, uh, you know, likely kill, ordered the killing of people. I mean, this is not a man that you want to anger. And so I think that there is this you know, circle of pleasing that you have to do in order to be in his good graces. And I would imagine many of them are 
afraid, really, that you know, they might be blamed for not doing enough or not being as successful. Because I think when they Putin entered into this invasion, they clearly thought that it would be an easy win. They would easily easily top, topple Kiev, and that has not happened. You know, and the Kremlin even announced that they are going to pull troops from that Kiev region. So I think there is some recognition there among Putin that this is not going well, and he probably does see those Western reports. So I think it's I think it's in places like that they've had more success in more sort of rural areas, but you know that I think getting the capital is what would almost seal the deal. And we've seen, you know, uh, with, as you mentioned, Zelensky really, uh, you know, sort of this underdog mentality, standing up to a massive world power and being able to uh, stand up to them and sort of keep their, you know, sort of fighting spirit. So uh, just the fact that this is, you know, it doesn't feel like it's gone on relatively short when we talk about, you know, an invasion. But again, they thought that they could sort of blitz them and that this would be an easy way to pick up more territory. And it hasn't hasn't turned out to be that way. And in terms of how the U.S. is approaching this, this isn't the first time the U.S. has released intel about Russia to the public. What do you think the strategy is there? I think the strategy is to get more people uh, in support of actions against Ukraine. Um, although, I mean, there, we, we see in polling that there is a lot of support. There's support for additional sanctions. There's support for this additional money. I think there's support among people for refugees being taken in. And that's one thing that the White House announced this week, too, that they would be increasing, I think, up to 100,000 more. Um, but, you know, ultimately, where I think it where I still don't think that it is sort of seeped into the public consciousness fully and going back to talking about gas prices, you know, is one rationale for here's why we're paying more at the pump. I just think that, you know, this isn't, I feel like Americans still feel very disconnected from, from it. As you mentioned, it's not happening here. We were not attacked in on U.S. soil like we were on 9-11. Um, there's clearly very little appetite for sending U.S. forces over there, uh, especially given the you know, botched withdrawal from Afghanistan last August that really sort of started the White House's spiral of bad news and being unable to recover. And that's where Biden's approval rating is continue to drop. We saw two polls out this week from NBC and Marist where he was at 40 percent, 39 percent. I mean, those are just disastrous numbers for the midterm elections. And even though his approval is slightly better on when it comes to issues of Ukraine, it's still not great. And it's even worse on the economy. So I think that they are trying to do that. I think they're trying to, you know, just tell Putin, we know what's really going on. You're not going to sort of pull the wool over our eyes here. And Neftali, briefly, if you can, talks are underway between Ukrainian and Russian negotiators. How could Putin's lack of information affect those negotiations? Well, clearly what it raises the prospect of is that the negotiators could agree to something because they understand the position in the battlefield that Russia faces, and Putin could then overrule them. And that creates a very shaky terrain for negotiations. I think that's that's the risk. But, I, you know, I think it's fascinating the way that the Biden administration very strategically releases intelligence information. And clearly, I think this was in part intended to, you know, cause mischief and dissension within the Kremlin to make Putin look like a little bit of a dupe and his generals look dishonest. And it's the kind of thing he used to do to us all the time. So I think it's fascinating that that weapon of intelligence and information psychology is being turned against him. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. 
It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. On Tuesday, former President Donald Trump called on Putin to release any information he has on President Biden's son, Hunter. Trump specifically cited a controversial 2020 Senate GOP report on Hunter Biden's alleged dealings with Russia. Now, Jessica, remind us, what were the conclusions of that report? And were they as damning as Trump seems to be claiming that they were? They largely were not. This was a partisan report that came out right before the election. And, you know, have to remember, too, that um, Trump was impeached for trying to get dirt on Biden with Ukraine. I mean, it, it remind this the comments that he made, you know, reminded me of in the 2016 campaign when Trump asked uh, Russia to release any emails of Clintons that they have, which I think you were at that press conference, weren't you, Sarah? Uh, indeed, I was in Florida. <laughs> yeah. Yes, unforgettable day. Yeah, um, and so you know he's he's asking this this unsubstantiated claim about Biden paying uh, obtaining a payment from the former wife of the um, mayor of Moscow, um, saying that you know she paid him three and a half million dollars. Um, I mean, just the it's not surprising considering Trump. Um, and the way that he approached Putin during his tenure and the way that he is now, you know, he praised Putin almost for making a smart move. Um, when the initial in, uh, invasion happened, he's backed off of that sum. But, I mean, to me, it stands in contrast. I've been fascinated by the fact that a lot of these Republican lawmakers, you know, save for the Madison Cawthorns of the world and different things, that they have been tougher on Putin. And I think that the, given the fact that Trump is not in office anymore, they feel a little more freedom to to say these things about him, whereas they may have sort of held their comments about him because you don't want to anger Trump. And his, I, I do think, you know, his influence is waning somewhat. We're going to see that test and whether, tested whether some of his preferred uh, candidates that he's endorsed make it through May, May and June primaries. But I think ultimately this just stands in, you know, a war is happening here and we're clearly, as is most of the world, on the side of Ukraine. And he is trying to, you know, use this for political gain again to make a 2024 comeback. William, I wonder if you could say a little more about what Jessica just alluded to, which is the relationship between Trump and the GOP and how Trump's continued relationship with Putin, his cozy relationship with him, is that beginning to separate him from some members of his own party? I mean, perhaps it is. I mean, I think as as Jessica was just saying, it is very hard at this moment in time, and as Naftali alluded to earlier, to side with the dictator in his lair, as Naftali put it. I mean, this is as stark a contrast, this this illegal invasion of Ukraine. And just to echo what Jessica was saying, that I think we've sometimes lost our ability to remain shocked at the behavior of the former president. But we are in a full-out economic war against Vladimir Putin for this invasion. The man is bombing cities, killing civilians, triggering a massive refugee crisis. And you have the former president coming out and saying, hey, could you do me a favor now, since you don't like the U.S. because we're waging this economic war on you, could you drop some intel that will hurt the current president of the United States? It's just, again, I know we've come to expect these kinds of things, but it is just such a striking thing. There has also been, as far as I have seen, no 
public pushback from anyone in the GOP that this is inappropriate for the former president to be doing in the middle of this war. I haven't heard it. So if there is a cleavage that is growing, perhaps, uh, as we've been saying, there are some members of the GOP who are now publicly able to say the plain facts of the case, which is Putin is doing terrible things right now, and we as the United States ought to side with him. I want to turn to the latest developments in the investigation of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This week, the Washington Post revealed the January 6th House Committee is investigating a seven-hour-plus gap in Trump's phone logs from that day. Internal White House records turned over to the committee show no activity during the hours that his supporters were attacking the Capitol, which is I mean, I think it's fair to say unimaginable that there was there were no phone calls happening at that time. Neftali, put this in, into perspective for us. How unusual is a gap like this and what might it mean? I mean, it's highly unusual. There's no other way to put it. And I think the questions that have arisen since we essentially know that there were phone calls between the president and Kevin McCarthy and others during that time is, you know, how are those calls made? And, you know, there's questions of burner phones or was he sort of borrowing an AIDS phone? It's not known. But it seems fairly clear that calls were made and were not recorded, which is not appropriate. And I, you know, I'm not potentially illegal, I guess. I'm not, I'm not up on that, but clearly not the way that things are supposed to work. I mean, you have to, you have to be struck by the resonance between this and the, and the Watergate uh, scandal where, uh, you know, not only because there was a gap in records of conversations between the president and other people at a critical moment with that 18 and a half minute gap on the, on the Watergate taps, but it's just amazing to me that, I mean, Bob Woodward was like the lead reporter on the Watergate story, and now here he is breaking news of this gap uh, with another president, 50 years later. It's just really kind of striking. Um, but if I could take a step back for, for a minute, one of the things that I think underlies the whole dynamic of all the legal developments, the investigative developments, is this big question of whether or not President Trump will be charged with a crime. And I think that's been brought to the fore a little bit by the comment of a federal judge in California that he more than likely broke the law. Um, but I think that's a sort of a, a kind of a, a crisis or, or, or a, a kind of climax that we're going to see come to a head in the next few months. And it's going to be a real political, legal, uh, you know, a social and investigative coming together of this overriding question. Um, and that's something that the committee's looking at, the Justice Department is looking at. Uh, and I think it's going to become a real pressing question in months to come. William, what are some of the theories the committee may be exploring about what happened during those seven hours and how there are no phone records. Um, the question, obviously, is, uh, as we've been discussing, that we know that there were calls that the president made during January 6th. And the whole question is, who was the president talking to? Was he in any way trying to get people to dial back the violence that we all saw unfolding at the Capitol? Was he encouraging it? Was he being neutral? Was he being un was he unwilling to really recognize what was going on and intervene, as, as we are told that many of his allies were imploring him to do. I should add, CNN has been reporting that there, there might be a more innocent explanation for this. There's something, they have spoken to several people, just reading this this morning, that apparently the way the president used the White House switchboard, which is when these calls get logged, might explain that he uses the switchboard when he's in the residence, but when he's sitting in the Oval Office, he often has um, aides or other people make calls on cell phones for him and then hand him the cell phone or use landlines in which those cases would not be, those calls would not be logged. Again, 
I don't know how true that is. But would that explain a total absence of phone records? I don't know. I don't know enough about the nuances of it, but their reporting seemed to indicate that it might be that this isn't as as much of a smoking gun as possible. But again, the larger question is, what was going on on January 6th? Everyone could see, certainly everyone within the Capitol could see the violence that was unfolding. And the larger question that this committee is looking at and that these logs might shed some light on is what kind of coordination, understanding, and attempts to dial back that horrible day were coming from the White House or not. Also this week, the House committee investigating the attack voted to hold two former advisors to former President Trump in contempt of Congress. Those were Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino. They both refused to comply with the House investigation. Jessica, there are recommendations for criminal charges. Those would need to come from the U.S. Justice Department. Is there a possibility that either Navarro or Scavino might face prosecution? Well, we have seen Steve Bannon be indicted on this. Um, The white contempt charges that the House um, put forward have been referred to Attorney General Merrick Garland for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. So, you know, it's in in a Democratic Senate and House, it's very likely that these uh, contempt charges would go forward with what the January 6th committee finds. I mean, both of them are leaning on executive privilege that they have claimed. And of course, the current White House says that can't can't be claimed. Um, and, you know, the, Scavino especially was his, Trump's essentially, uh, you know, st- he, he was his Twitter sort of um, mastermind in a way. So he's likely knows a lot about what was going on, who they may have been trying to contact and different things. Um, and so it's really, I think it's all eyes sort of on Merrick Garland. And there's been some frustration about, you know, are, what is he going to do? Um, certainly many Democrats would like for him to be more forceful in pushing this. So, you know, he could really face some pressure in the coming months as the committee continues their investigation and and eventually reaches some conclusions about what the Justice Department is going to pursue. I think quickly, Jessica, with all of this this drip, drip of information coming out, I, I think a lot of Democrats, I hear a lot of frustration about why there haven't been charges so far. Um, can you say anything about that? I think that the Justice Department, especially after after why Trump's Justice Department was so politicized, I mean, I, I think there is a sense that how would this look going after another administration? That is somewhat unprecedented. Um, even though obviously what happened on January sixth and the days leading up to it was just tragic and unprecedented and a threat to democracy, but. If I'm looking at the 2020, 2022 midterms, which is my job to look at these all day, I mean, we increasingly see January 6th. That is not a driving issue. Um, it, it is the economy. It is inflation. And so I think to bring up some of these things, it, it could energize the Democratic base. That is one thing. When we look at where uh, where Biden's approval numbers are, he's very he's he's lost almost a quarter of support or a fifth of support um, among Democrats. Just so I think there is some frustration that they're not doing enough, as as you mentioned. So um, we will have to see. But I do think you know. And there's 
was Merrick Garland the right choice? Uh, and would another attorney general be more forceful in pursuing in pursuing this? So I think I think Merrick Garland is really going to be under the microscope in the coming months. I want to turn now to the U.S. Supreme Court. On Thursday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi suggested Justice Clarence Thomas recuse himself from any case dealing with the January 6th insurrection. That's after revelations that his wife, Ginny Thomas, sent dozens of texts pressuring former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to overturn the 2020 election results. Why should they have lower standards than members of Congress in terms of reporting and the rest? You know, there are people say from time to time, well, it's a personal decision of a judge as to whether he, he um, should recuse himself. Well, if your wife is an admitted and proud contributor to a coup of our country, maybe you should weigh that in your ethical standards. Realistically, William, is there any chance that Thomas will actually recuse himself from some of these cases? Um, I, I don't. I can't imagine it, and no serious court watcher that I know of would argue that he would. I mean, he's he has said nothing about this, um, and uh, as Nancy Pelosi is hinting at, and as we, you mentioned before, there really is no ethics code here. I mean, the Supreme Court is not bound by the judicial code of ethics that applies to all these other federal judges. The Supreme Court, as Nancy Pelosi, we just heard, sort of self enforces its own thing. They can decide when they need to recuse. Uh, Jane Mayer and others have pointed out that that SCOTUS is bound by U.S. law, and there is a statute that says that any judge is supposed to step aside from a case if their spouse has an interest in the outcome of the case. Now, in this situation, what do we mean by interest? What's the definition of an interest? Does it mean a financial interest? Does it mean an intellectual interest? I mean, the, the Ginny Thomas texts are so striking. I mean, she has got a deep, deep investment in seeing Donald Trump remain in the White House and Joe Biden being sent back to Delaware. That certainly feels like an interest. But again, there's no precedent for Thomas to have to step aside. I mean, again, maybe the judge justices get together and Chief Justice Roberts says, look, we cannot allow us to be seen as a partisan organization and please do this. But no evidence that that's going to happen. And what kinds of cases, anything concerning January 6th, certainly, but are there other kinds of cases that critics are especially concerned about here? Well, we did see one case where uh, during all of this, the election litigation that was going on, that a case was brought to the Supreme Court. And this was, again, part of Donald Trump's effort all along. He wanted to push all of these unfounded theories about fraud in the election through the courts quickly and get them to the Supreme Court. He very publicly said, if we get this to the Supreme Court, we will win. And there was one instance where a case over the revelation of some records went to the Supreme Court. And the only justice who sided with the Trump administration was Justice Thomas. So the fear is that if there are subsequent cases, if these subpoenas that the committee wants to pursue, if someone balks at that, if a, if a legitimate case pursuing some claim of election fraud does make it to the court, how can Justice Thomas sit and rule fairly on that when we know his wife has been such an ardent activist in that fight? Jessica, senior Democrats in response to this are now pushing for a Supreme Court ethics code. What might that look like? Who would write it? And how might it be enforced? 
Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, is the one who said that he plans to call for it um, and adopt it. I mean, I think that, you know, he says it should be a binding code of conduct and that the Supreme Court should not police itself, which is, as you mentioned, what we sort of have and what other federal judges have. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what it would look like particularly, but I do think it would probably be pretty directly addressing situations such as this, where if your spouse or another family member um, or yourself has some type of interest or tie to this, that it could, that, that there's a clear conflict of interest. I mean, there's just, as you mentioned with those texts, I mean, there was just so many things revealing from Jenny Thomas and, uh, Clarence Thomas has said in the past he doesn't discuss these things with his wife, but one of her text messages said, you know, I was talking to my best friend about this. Well, that's maybe her husband. (laughs) We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to talk a little bit more about the Supreme Court. Next week, Congress will vote on whether to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the court. She has managed to sway at least one Republican, Maine Senator Susan Collins. Neftali, Collins is on board. Are any other Republicans? Well, the others that seem like they could potentially vote for Jackson are Mitt Romney uh, of Utah and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Um, and, you know, that that's probably it. Um, the, uh, you know, Collins' announcement, obviously, it only brings one Republican on board for sure. But it does avoid the spectacle of Kamala Harris having to come down to the Senate chamber uh, and break a tie, which was a possibility if all 50 Democrats and independents voted for Jackson and all 50 Republicans voted no. And I I think that's something the White House really wanted to avoid. So in that sense, it really is something of a win for the White House to, to at least get Collins. But I mean, this whole discussion in a way just highlights how incredibly partisan Supreme Court confirmation uh, votes have become. I mean, you know, we're talking about whether she'll get one or two or three Republican votes. Um, but essentially, this is going to be something close to a straight party line vote. And as Collins herself you know, mentioned when she announced her support for Jackson, it wasn't that long ago that a Scalia or a Ginsburg could get a unanimous or near unanimous vote. And so this all feels like one further step in the politicization of the court that the process works that way. So um, it's sort of, um, you know, what Colin said was sort of simultaneously announcing her support, but also decrying the growing partisanship of the process. And with Collins on board, having averted the risk of Vice President Harris having to cast that tie-breaking vote, technically Jackson doesn't need any Republican votes to be confirmed. Why continue to push for at least some GOP support? Is it because of that concern about partisanship? Well, I think that Biden, it's very, very important to him to be seen as somebody who uh, has, has, has prompted some bipartisanship in Washington. When he took office, he talked about it, you know, nonstop. And he talked about Republicans sort of having an epiphany and coming around to him. That has not happened. But he has succeeded in some ways. I mean, I think that the uh, infrastructure bill was sort of a big deal. Um, you know, there's bipartisan support for our uh, support of Ukraine. Uh, and it's just has, it's very much central to his worldview that, um, you know, democracy is how 
have to work a certain way and that they can't work if they're strictly partisan. A lot of people feel that that is very naive and outdated, but he's sticking to it. And I think, honestly, it makes a big difference to him whether, you know, she's, whether Ketanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed with 50 votes and Kamala Harris or 53 votes uh, and 47 against. So it just, it does mean a lot to him. Others may see it a different way, but it's one of the defining elements of his presidency and his political philosophy. So I think, you know, he's calling these guys, he's, he's lobbying, he's doing everything he can to make this, you know, as much of a bipartisan vote as he possibly can. This week, President Biden released a $5.8 trillion budget for fiscal year 2023, which includes funding for education, policing, and affordable housing. It also calls for higher taxes on the ultra-wealthy. Right now, billionaires pay an average rate of 8% on their total income. 8%, that's the average they pay. Now, I'm a capitalist, but uh, just, I want, I, I, if you can make a billion bucks, great. Just pay your fair share. Pay a little bit. A firefighter and a teacher pay more than double, double the tax rate that a billionaire pays. That's not right. That's not fair. And my budget contains a billionaire minimum tax because of that. A president's budget is more like a policy wish list. Congress ultimately decides how those taxpayer dollars are going to be spent. So, Naftali, what are the big things that Biden is asking for? Well, you know, it's true that there is this, uh, you know, minimum tax on on the very wealthy. Uh, but a lot of what this budget does is it attempts to position Biden and the Democratic Party more to the center than they have been. I mean, one of the notable things is that there's a lot of money for fighting crime, and a lot of that's going to go to police departments. Uh, and I think that's a direct response to this attempt by Republicans to call Democrats the defund the police uh, party. Uh, and there's also a 10% increase in the defense budget. Uh, and even the... Uh, there's a lot of deficit reduction. Uh, and even the minimum tax seems to be kind of a populist gesture aimed at the center. So I think this is very much a budget with the politics of the moment in mind. And it really reflects the trajectory of the Biden presidency, which started off with some pretty grand progressive ambitions. And they've really been scaled back. The politics have shifted. Uh, and so this budget reflects that. Um, and to me, one of the most interesting parts of it is, is the whole issue of criminal justice. When Biden took office, there was so much talk about about police reform and uh, reigning in the police and police brutality and, and so forth. And it's not that Biden has changed his position. It's just a change in emphasis. And he talks so much more now about the importance of supporting the police and fighting crime. And that's just a reflection of how things have changed as crime has risen uh, and, uh, and some of the other issues have receded a little bit into the background. And all that's reflected in this very interesting budget. Jessica, the budget calls for a minimum 20% tax on the incomes of households worth $100 million or more. How is this call for a new minimum tax being received, both inside and outside of Washington? I mean, we've seen that this is something very popular, um, and you know, it, it sort of echoes things that you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have called for, who are certainly not in the same uh, camp as Joe Biden uh, politically. Uh, but it's something that has polled well, really. But again, as you mentioned, these are blueprints. These are sort of abstract ideas. And enacting some type of massive overhaul of the tax code in an election year and 
then when we fully expect, I mean, the House is more likely than not going to flip to Republican control. The Senate at 50-50, I think that's it's still, Democrats still have a chance there. But this is not something that's going to go through a Republican Congress. Um, and so I think it's still very much a wish list. But I think it shows people that Biden is, I mean, I think a lot of this budget was to show that he is, caring about working people and recognizing inflation, which, again, I think is going to be the top issue of the midterm elections. And, I, you know, to me, this was sort of a subtle jab at Trump, too, because who, of course, never released his taxes. Um, we largely think that he probably didn't pay anything in many years. And just the way that these billionaires uh, can... Um, use tax loopholes and different things and uh, losses that they had to not pay anything. I mean, there most people feel like that's unfair. But again, feeling like it's unfair and making it a federal law are two very different things. Neftali, how much of this has a chance of actually making its way through Congress? Well, I think it's true what, what folks are saying, which is that this is much more of a political document and a statement of the president's values uh, and what the political message is intended to be for the midterms than it is something that it's likely to pass through Congress. I mean, uh, you know, obviously the budget's funded. I mean, a, a lot of this is not really that different from current expenditures or from things that Biden has, has proposed in the past. And I think those things will likely will likely be approved. But the sort of standout things like the minimum tax and so forth, I think, don't have as much of a chance of passage. But, you know, again, this is really a statement of the president's values and political stance and much less a financial blueprint for the country. I want to move on to some COVID news from the week. The FDA authorized a second booster for everyone over age 50. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said in a statement, quote, people over the age of 50 can now get an additional booster four months after their prior dose to increase their protection further. This is especially important for those people 65 and older and those 50 and older with underlying medical conditions. William, this would mean a fourth shot for some people. Besides those over 50, who else is eligible for a second booster shot? So shot number four. Um, just as you're saying, it's anyone that's over 50 or anyone that is considered immunocompromised for whatever reason. Uh, those people, if you remember, it's about 5 million Americans who fall under this category. They might be undergoing cancer treatment. They might be taking drugs to, that, that end up reducing their, their immune system. Those people did not get a terribly good protection from the vaccine to begin with. So most of those people were given three doses of the vaccine and then a booster. So they might be eligible now for a fifth shot. So it's people 50 and up, and it is those immunocompromised people. And officials, when they rolled out this announcement, they really did try to stress that the vaccines are still providing good protection, especially for the things that really matter, like keeping you out of the hospital and stopping you from dying. But that there was evidence that at about four months, that protection started to wane a little bit. And so, and, and the waning happens, especially for elderly and these immunocompromised people. And so there were these two Israeli studies that showed that a, that a booster could boost your immunity and offer good additional protection. And so that, coupled with the fact that this new Omicron subvariant known as BA2 is really causing a lot of problems overseas, and we're starting to see an uptick in those cases here in the U.S., they thought, okay, let's roll this out. I should add, this was not a universally acclaimed move. A lot of public health officials thought 
this is not an appropriate move. People 50, 55, 60 do not need to get it because they're still getting good protection. But uh, asking people to try to time their booster for when a surge might occur is asking everyone to be an armchair epidemiologist. Uh, So again, it was just not the most universally acclaimed idea. But now, as we saw President Biden getting his this week, anyone 50 and over can now go get that additional booster. In other booster news, the CDC is recommending adults who received their J&J, the J&J vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, for their primary vaccine and booster get either Moderna or Pfizer for their second booster shot. Uh, William, can you say some more about why that is? Yeah, there was always this question as to whether or not how how protective the J&J booster was. And a lot of people who got J&J got that single dose and then got a booster of J&J. And so now the officials are saying the data looks pretty clear that we would recommend that if you've been a J&J vaccine person thus far to get extra protection, if you're going to get a booster and they are recommending, again, same group of people to get that booster, that you switch over to an mRNA vaccine. So the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. And so that has been their recommendations. And those things also are similarly available to people starting now. Turning now to Florida, where Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law what critics have dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. It restricts what kindergarten through third grade teachers can teach about gender identity and sexual orientation in the classroom. It also says any instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity in any grade has to be, quote, age appropriate or developmentally appropriate in accordance with state standards. MSNBC spoke with Florida kindergarten teacher Corey Bernard about the impact of the new law. We build relationships with our kids. And in order to build relationships, you talk about your home life. You talk about what you do on the weekends. That's building community. I It scares me to death that I am not going to be able to have these conversations with my children because they're going to ask me what I did on the weekend. I don't want to have to hide that my partner and I went paddle boarding this weekend because mm-hmm. then they ask, well, what does partner mean, Mr. Bernard? And, you know, I, I'm worried. Can I tell them what it means? I'm also worried for my kids. I have a little girl this year who has two moms and the kids are curious about her two moms. They want to know about her two moms. You know, if they come to if they go to her and ask her about her two moms and she doesn't know what to say, they're going to come to me and ask me. And then, you know, so what do I do? It just it opens up uh, for parents to really take some legal action against the schools and teachers. And I I am afraid uh, for myself, my colleagues and my students. Jessica, what does this new law mean in practice? I mean, it is sort of the first of its kind we have seen here. And Ron DeSantis, of course, is a possible 2024 presidential candidate. He's running for re-election this year. It certainly put him on the national stage with this, both good and bad with people. Um, But as the teacher there explained, I think that's the concern with the law is that, okay, you may not want to talk about this until a certain age, but there are non-traditional families out there um, that really have become the norm in many places. Um, And that it's sort of hard to you can't really sort of divorce the two and what what is enforcement of this going to look like? You know, parents have an option now of suing the school district if the policy is 
is violated. I mean, they're framing it as this choice for parents. Um, you know, we're seeing substantial blowback. There's already uh, be, LGBT groups are already suing over it. Um, you know, DeSantis has sort of gotten in a tiff with Walt Disney Company there, of course, that has come out very much against the law. But I will just say that, um, you know, we have, I, I want to see some more polling on it. And there was, I will, I will, um, I will uh, say that this was a Republican poll that came out by the firm Public Opinion Strategies, but they put out a national poll saying that when Americans see the actual language of it, that it's that they support it by a two to one margin, and that's including 55% of Democrats and 61% uh, of people who know someone who is LGBTQ. Um, so will we see that continue? I want to see more data, but what it means for Ron DeSantis, I mean, he still enjoys incredibly high approval ratings in a state that is becoming tougher and tougher for Democrats. Um, he has a 59% approval rating in a poll that came out this week. He's leading his uh, potential Democratic uh, challengers, including former Governor Charlie Crist, by double digits. I mean, this is a race that we at the Political, Political Report recently moved from lean Republican into likely Republican, so it's out of our most competitive, one of our competitive, competitive categories. So, um, I, I'm not seeing evidence yet that he's facing political blowback, at least in his state, for doing this. And really quickly, just in about 20 seconds or so, is this a is this part a midterm strategy as well? I think it's a midterm strategy and also a um, to get his name out there more to to, to uh, create and build his national profile. He's clearly looking at the White House. He's he's aiming for that. They're not really being shy about this, so I think this is to give him some more cred with conservative voters. And I would just note that it's not the only state where we're seeing legislation aimed at restricting what's taught in schools. But we'll have to talk about that another time. We've been talking with Jessica Taylor, the Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report, Naftali Ben-David, Politics Editor for The Washington Post, and William Brangham, Correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Remember, the 1A podcast is a great way to catch up on anything you've missed. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Chris Castano is digital editor. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. How much does Russia's president know about the war he started six weeks ago? Western intelligence agencies now say Putin's generals are holding back reports like this. This was a Russian camp, and you could see they had all of their weapons here, dugout positions, and they were bombed. There's still some bodies in this area, and they left a lot of their equipment behind after what appears to have been a devastating attack on their position. There's nothing left. That's Richard Engels reporting for NBC from the outskirts of Kharkiv. This morning, Russia accused Ukraine of carrying out an airstrike against a fuel depot inside Russia. There's news, too, from Pakistan and China. And to help us find a way through all of it are Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Amy McKinnon, a national security reporter for foreign policy. Amy, thanks for joining us again. Great to be here. And Robert Moore, Washington correspondent for ITV News. Robert, we appreciate you joining us, too. Great to be on your show again. 
Nancy, I'll begin with you. Six weeks into this war, what stood out to you as the major developments of this past week? There were a couple. Uh, We saw the first serious attempt at negotiations in Istanbul this week and for a fleeting moment promise of perhaps a path towards peace. But instead, I think we got our first signal that rather than looking to in the conflict that Russia is potentially setting up and repositioning its forces towards um, moving east and focusing on the Donbass, potentially with the intent of coming back to Kiev and other places in the north at, at some point. I think that was an important development. And on the U.S. side, I think we saw for the first time in the rhetoric we heard from both Moscow and Washington that uh, the relationship between the two nations may be irreparable as long as Putin is in power. I think we were moving towards that position in the last few weeks, but this week I think it's very clear that there's no real um, repairable um, opening between the two nations um, if, if Vladimir Putin remains president of Russia. Amy, the Pentagon has said that about 20 percent of Russia's force near Ukraine's capital is pulling back, but not to mistake that as a sign of actual withdrawal. What is the strategy here then? Well, Ukrainian officials and Western officials this week have always concerns that what we're seeing from Russia now is not so much a retreat, but a repositioning. Um, As Nancy said, I think there's a lot of concern that what Russia may be doing is looking to regroup and reposition and focus on eastern Ukraine, focus on the Donbass, um, where I think we can expect to see a real escalation in fierce fighting there. Um, the city of Mariupol is is still besieged by Russian forces. The center, I believe, is still under Ukrainian control, but there are fears that that could fall within the coming days. And if that were to happen, that will give Russia a very strategic footprint on that southern coast with which they can bring in forces, bring in reinforcements, and then potentially push up through that part of eastern Ukraine, eventually perhaps even connecting with Russian forces coming down from the north, coming down from around Kharkiv. Now, this is all very hypothetical. There has been there have been a lot of twists and turns in this conflict already one month in. But if they were able to do that, there are real fears that they could encircle Ukraine Ukrainian troops that are based in eastern Ukraine, and that could cut off a very sizable chunk of the Ukrainian armed forces from the rest of the military there. There have also been reports of troops leaving the Chernobyl nuclear plant. What could the absence of Russia's troops there mean for the next steps in this war, Amy? Well, most importantly, it would give control of the plant in the surrounding area back to the Ukrainians who can actually run it and uh, and. I mean, the plan is obviously not operational following the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, but there's a lot of work that goes on in that area to um, to, to, to monitor um, radiation levels um, and to just, you know, to make sure that, that, that things are kept under control, because that was one of the, the fears very early on in this war is, is what happened if the plant fell to control of Russian forces. The other thing I would add is that, you know, whilst the Russians are claiming to be pulling back from around Kiev, and there are some signs that Ukrainian advances have succeeded in in retaking certain areas. Military analysts that we speak to also say that it is unlikely that they they will they will withdraw entirely from the Kiev area because that would, we've seen that this week that shelling has continued in certain areas because that would free up a lot of Ukrainian forces um, to move to the Donbass for that for what we expect maybe the the coming fight in the east, and so they may Russian forces may look to kind of. St- 
retain some presence in the Kiev area to pin down um, and just, you know, keep keep Ukrainian troops uh, busy there so that they can't be sent to reinforce uh, elsewhere. Earlier this week, we spoke with Shane Harris, an intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post, about the morale of Russia's troops. It does seem like morale is quite low right now. There's been evidence even before we published our story of troops sending back messages to their parents, their families back home saying that they didn't even know that they were being conscripted to go fight in Ukraine. They thought they were going off on a training mission. You've also seen just real confusion and basic kind of operational level uh, maneuvers. I mean, people using, commanders using the wrong call sign with each other, incorrectly calling each other by their real names. I think this speaks to a kind of confusion and lack of coordination and, frankly, a lack of sophistication among many of these troops on the ground level. I think some of these forces and these officers are actually quite young, uh, and some of them maybe have not served in combat before. Jeremy Fleming, the U.K. spy chief, shared a similar sentiment this week. He was giving a speech in Australia and said some Russian soldiers are refusing to carry out orders and sabotaging their own equipment. Robert, what evidence have you seen that backs up these claims about low morale and general disillusionment among Russian troops? Oh, I think there's, uh, Sarah, there's every indication that, that uh, Russian troop morale is, is spectacularly low. We know that many of them went into Ukraine uh, believing they were part of a, a training exercise. That's what their commanders had told them or else genuinely believing uh, sort of Russian propaganda that they were involved in a fight against and Nazis, you know, preposterous at one level, but many of these young uh, soldiers appeared to have believed that. And it, it reminds us all, doesn't it, that, you know, you can't measure a conflict by the number of tanks being deployed or the number of artillery pieces. You know, an army fighting on its own territory with a sense of moral purpose is very likely to do better than one with its troops feeling misled and even betrayed. So I think there is every sense that... Uh, that Moscow has got this badly wrong in terms of sending in troops who are both demoralized and demotivated and who are confronting, you know, catastrophic strategic blunders. And we've seen that in other uh, conflicts before. But in this case, you know, Ukrainian troops are fighting with real sort of moral clarity and with courage. And that is going to be, uh, you know, a major issue going forward. These are Ukrainian soldiers who are are fighting for the lives of their families and and for their, their home uh, towns and villages. So, you know, it remains unclear whether eventually uh, Russian military might will win. But there's no question that uh, at this stage, the Ukrainians are considerably outperforming what we what we expected. And Robert, low morale and lack of motivation among Russian troops is one thing, but potential sabotage and uh, miscommunication with Putin is another, it seems like. Tell us more about what we know about how information is flowing between Putin and his military commanders. Yeah, it's a fascinating question that. And, you know, it comes on the back of reports this week from U.S. intelligence sources saying that um, they believe that Putin is getting inaccurate and overly optimistic battlefield assessments from his uh, commanders on the ground. And that really strikes a chord with me because a few years ago I read an investigative book about Putin's first military humiliation, namely the, the sinking and the loss of the Kursk submarine up in the, in the Barents Sea during the summer of 2000. And there are striking parallels with what happened then with what's happening now uh, in Ukraine. During the Kursk tragedy, Putin was notoriously non-responsive. He didn't even cancel his holiday. 
And my reporting made clear that his military commanders at the time, Defence Minister Sergeyev and, and the Chief of the General Staff back in 2000, Anatoly Kovashnin, just didn't have the courage to pass on bad news up the chain of command. They didn't want to, to tell him that the pride of the Northern Fleet was a mangled wreck on the seabed of the Barents Sea. And that same... You know, it's, it's a long sort of history in the Russian military, dating back to Tsarist days, actually, that there is a deep reluctance to pass on, uh, you know, uh, mistakes up the chain of command or to confess to military failures. And, you know, what was a feature in 2000 for the Russian Northern Fleet, I think, is very much in play now, which is military commanders just frankly too scared to tell Vladimir Putin exactly how badly uh, the military operation is going. Nancy, uh, briefly, as we just have another minute or so, but what does uh, Vladimir Putin has also announced that 16,000 recruits from the Middle East have signed up to fight in Russia's army. The the Syrian army is offering these soldiers $3,000 a month to fight in Ukraine. For some, that would be 50 times their usual salary. Nancy, what does that say about how Russia's army is faring? Well, a couple things. Remember that the number of Russian troops believed to have been killed in this attack, the figures are as high as 15,000. That's an extraordinary number for a war that began February 24th. Um, If you send Syrians or other fighters from other nations, you don't have Russian mothers getting calls um, from the cell phones of of their sons left on the side of the road hearing that, that their child has died. It, it says that the that they're, that the Russian military may be hurting for personnel, but it's also a dangerous um, way to proceed because these are not your nationals. They have not proven to be um, consistent fighters in places like uh, um, Syria, where he, he, the Russians have been alongside of them, and so it speaks to possibly personnel issues. Some would argue desperation on the Russian side, and 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 a bid to keep the the horrors of the wars away from Russian families. Well, you know, it's one of the great sort of mysteries, exactly what did happen in that uh, negotiating session at the beginning of the week. Yes, I mean, there are reports that Roman Abramovich and and two other negotiators fell mysteriously ill in one of the early sessions, Abramovich appearing to act not in an official capacity, but more as a sort of intermediary, since he has good relations, uh, obviously, with President Putin, but also because his uh, maternal grandparents come from Ukraine, he has some credibility Uh, acting um, as an interlocutor with them as well. We don't know uh, whether there was an actual poisoning uh, or not. Uh, U.S. intelligence has suggested there may not have been, but this is exactly the sort of grey zone that that President Putin so so often operates in. Remember, you know, Russia has a long track record of of poisoning. Sergei Skripal, the the, uh, former FSB double uh, double agent who was poisoned in England in 2018, along with his daughter, Alexei Navalny, of course, the opposition leader, and then back in 2004, Viktor Yushchenko, the former uh, Ukrainian president, all of whom uh, were poisoned. So there's no question that... uh, Russia does this. It's kind of part of its sort of secret uh, services uh, modus operandi, if you like. Um, And if it's not known exactly what happened, that may suit the Russians well. If people think it's sort of opaque and unclear and they're constantly looking over their shoulder, that may suit the Kremlin perfectly. They want to create a a sense of of anybody who opposes the Kremlin narrative having to be, uh, you know, seriously nervous about uh, their welfare and constantly wondering what the Kremlin might be up to. So it's a mystery, but uh, that may be a mystery that suits President Putin just fine. 
Those peace talks have been pointing toward a path to potentially ending the war, which would be Ukraine abandoning its ambitions to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, something Russia has wanted for a while. Amy, what would it mean for Ukraine to stay out of NATO? It would be a huge policy shift for Ukraine. I mean, seeking NATO membership is something which has been written into their constitution and has been really one of the one of several motivating goals of successive Ukrainian administrations since the 2014 revolution. But it's unclear how this would work in practice. What Ukrainian officials have said, negotiators have said, is that they would be willing to discuss this idea of of military neutrality in exchange for security guarantees from Western countries, including the US, the UK, Germany, um, also, China and Russia were on that list, which was shared by uh, Ukraine's lead negotiator. But it's, it's, it seems like they have not discussed this yet with the countries involved. And what's unclear to me is security guarantees, i.e. the promise that these countries would intervene in the event that Ukraine was attacked by an external aggressor, is essentially NATO's Article 5 on mutual defense just in another name. And of course, it's that is Article 5 that has been the sticking point of why NATO countries have been hesitant to welcome uh, Ukraine into the alliance. And so I'm, it's very unclear to me at this stage how they're, you know, with one, with neutrality being contingent on security guarantees, how that would actually work in practice. I think it seems to me highly unlikely, but that there's going to have to be some very, very intensive diplomacy involved in getting that off the ground, if at all. Chip emails to say the proper end to Russia's unlawful war on Ukraine would be for Putin to be arrested by his own government and given the opportunity to trade his ill-gotten $100 billion fortune to pay to Ukraine in reparations in exchange for his life. On Monday, President Biden stood by some of his comments over the weekend about Vladimir Putin uh, while issuing a bit of a clarification. Biden said while visiting Poland, quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. End quote. Number one, I'm not walking anything back. But I want to make it clear, I wasn't then nor am I now articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel and I make no apologies for. Personal feelings, sir. My personal feelings. As the leader of the United States of America, delivering a big speech in front of a crowd as part of a visit overseas, Robert, how are we meant to tell what is U.S. policy and what might be the personal feelings of the commander in chief? Yeah, excellent question. And and it was that sort of ambiguity of what exactly is U.S. policy that led to so many people uh, being upset about uh, the, those sort of infamous nine words that uh, that President Biden said in Warsaw, but yet that he uh, he suggested was actually an expression not of foreign policy, but of his own personal moral outrage. I mean, there's no question that uh, the White House had to walk back those comments because you know nothing could be more provocative uh, than to suggest that the United States is engaged in some form of regime change in Russia. That would be kind of taking us taking the U.S. into unprecedented uh, territory. And more importantly, perhaps th- than that, it would completely sort of validate and and appear to justify uh, President Putin's sort of uh, inner paranoia. He could uh, clearly use that as a propaganda tool to say, "Look, I told you." that the America's goal is not to support an independent Ukraine, but to topple uh, the leadership 
of Russia. So, you know, I think it was no question that it was a significant blunder that he made in Warsaw, even if uh, he felt forced to kind of uh, suggest it was actually an expression of moral outrage, not of uh, of a foreign policy. But it is it has been damaging, and uh, it does lead to questions about what what American foreign policy is doing. Of course, Paris, London, other European capitals quickly distanced themselves from Biden's comments because they recognised it was a propaganda coup for the very man they were trying to isolate, namely Vladimir Putin. On Monday, PBS spoke to President Putin's chief spokesman, and uh, Dmitry Peskov. He repeated the Kremlin's grievance against NATO and called for the response, the response from the West, quote, total war. In seizing our properties, in seizing our funds, blocking our financial relations. For a couple of decades, we were telling the collective West, that we are afraid of your NATO's moving eastwards, getting closer to our borders with its military infrastructure. Please take care of that. Don't push us into the corner. Nancy, Dmitry Peskov keeps coming back to NATO as being one of the drivers behind what the Kremlin calls this special operation. Uh, To what extent has the war made a more expansive NATO more rather than less likely? Uh, I think at the minimum it has unified NATO. We have not seen NATO come out um, this um, unified in its messaging. We haven't seen a NATO that has been this committed to um, dedicating so much of its GDP in various nations to military spending. And so it, it, it... it also has raised questions for countries like Georgia and Moldova about how they can guarantee their own security in the absence of being members of NATO. And so it's really elevated the role of NATO for European nations. I think more broadly, it has raised um, how Europe thinks about its security. We we have to think about the Ukraine war for Europe as it's 9-11, and we have seen it respond in a really... Um, um, assertive fashion and because of that. Now, what does that mean for NATO expansion? I think um, it's, it's hard to say because on the other hand, you have um, a, a NATO that does not want to be um, essentially uh, escalating tensions with Russia or inviting more of these kinds of tensions. And so what I think you're going to see is uh, and have seen as a NATO that is trying to speak more assertively with one voice with more dedication to military um, um, resources. But I don't see a NATO eager to um, let in nations that could raise further tensions between Europe and Russia. Now, on Sunday at the Academy Awards, the war in Ukraine and our relations with Russia also played its part. One last thing. President Biden, bring Brittany Griner home. Thank you. Long live the queen. Thank you. That's Ben Proudfoot accepting his Oscar for the documentary short, The Queen of Basketball. As things stand, WNBA star Brittany Griner remains in detention in Russia. She was arrested in February when she got off a flight from New York. Customs officials said she had hashish oil in her bag. Now, Robert, do we know anything more about Griner at the moment? And is there a connection with the latest warning by the State Department about Moscow possibly targeting Americans who remain in Russia? Well, for sure, there is sort of concern. I mean, it's it's really a statement of just how poor, uh, perhaps irretrievably so, uh, relations are between, you know, the US and Russia, that we're now at the stage of, you know, of of warning our citizens, uh, Americans, to leave 
the Russian Federation, that it's simply not safe for them to be there in any capacity. You know, and that impacts a whole range of sort of cultural areas, not just, you know, sports, but also think of all the American students who, you know, would wish to travel there for cultural visits or to learn the language or to, you know, interact with ordinary Russians. And one of the great sort of tragedies of, of this war is, is how it is, you know, separating ordinary people. It's not just a tragedy of a military conflict, it is a cultural loss. You know, Russia, for all of its massive political flaws, is a, is a cultural jewel. Um, and, you know, many students from all over the world wish to, to go there to study uh, and to enjoy its ballet, its music, and its wonderful literature. So it does remind us that, you know, we're in 2022 and we're telling our citizens to have to leave Russia because they're simply not safe. And it, it's a reflection, I think, of just the the cultural tragedy that is going in parallel with the military conflict. This week, Germany took its first steps as part of a plan to ration gas. Poland, too, made a big announcement. Uh, Amy, what more can you tell us about this? Well, I think this just speaks to how profoundly Europe has been changed in the past five weeks since this war began. I mean, for the past two, three years, you know, we've been covering the story of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which runs from uh, from Russia to Germany and was uh, a real lightning rod for transatlantic tensions but during the Trump and during the Biden administrations. And, you know, German officials stood by this pipeline that was set to double Russian gas exports to Germany. Um, they, they stood by it, you know, despite international pressure, despite threat of sanctions. Um, and then, you know, right after uh, Putin announced that they, that Russia was going to recognize that the breakaway republics in the Donbass, the German government very quickly said it was going to suspend the pipeline. And so in the space of just a few weeks, we've gone from, you know, Germany, okay, space of a couple of months, we've gone from Germany standing by this pipeline, which would double Russian gas exports to Germany, to now saying that it's going to try and wean itself off uh, Russian gas entirely by 2024. And I just think this underscores how profound these the impact that this war has had more broadly on Europe, on, on transatlantic relations. And I think we're only just beginning to see the effects of how that's going to play out. Uh, on the the topic of the economy, I want to revisit one part of the speech given by President Biden on Sunday uh, that has not aged especially well. As a result of these unprecedented sanctions, the ruble almost is immediately reduced to rubble. The Russian economy, that's true, by the way, takes about 200 rubles equal one dollar. Now, Robert, that is not true now. The Russian ruble is actually nearing its pre-invasion value. So what explains that? What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, that's an uncomfortable moment for uh, President Biden. Yes, the ruble and the banking system are showing, you know, signs of recovery after the initial wave of sanctions. Moscow protecting its economy with its energy exports uh, and currency controls. And, of course, strong oil and gas exports are now... Uh, receiving, you know, very high prices. The Bank of Russia is actually one of the institutions in the country that is pretty capably run. But, you know, let's not forget that the economic pain and the shortages are real. There's, there's a, an estimate that uh, the Russian GDP will fall by 15% or so. And there's obviously been an exodus of, of foreign companies foreign companies. But remember, too, that sanctions actually can be counterproductive. They can lead to kind of economic resiliency. Um, and it does raise the question of whether, you know, the Western tool of, of economic sanctions is overused, whether it's ineffective, whether in some cases it is uh, 
uh, counterproductive. You know, there's something of a comfort blanket for Western policymakers using uh, uh, sanctions. You know, it's a substitute for tougher decisions about military engagement. And um, and now, you know, this is going to be a continuing fight because, of course, President Putin is now saying that, uh, you know, he will cut off oil and gas supplies to Europe unless... Um, uh, funds are transferred back to Russia in rubles, in other words, in, in a currency that uh, that they can use. So it's it's an ongoing issue, and it's uncomfortable for President Biden to realise that that sanctions are not the tool that perhaps so many Western policymakers would wish them to be. Moving away from Russia for a moment, on Tuesday, a Palestinian gunman killed five people in a suburb of Tel Aviv in Israel. It's the third deadly attack of its kind in a week. Also this week, Israeli forces killed three Palestinians during clashes in the West Bank. Nancy, tensions have heightened over the past two weeks ahead of Ramadan, the Muslim holy month. What do we know about efforts to bolster security there? So a couple of things. Um, you're right. This has been one of the most tense period in years in Israel because we've never seen so many attacks in such a short period of time. And it comes um, just ahead of Ramadan, uh, Passover, um, Easter, all converging at roughly the same time. And so what we've heard from the Israeli government is a real um, effort to move forces into places like the West Bank, increased um, um, arrests and operations, and urging by the government for those who have arms to uh, take those arms up to defend the country because I think there are a couple concerns. One, I think there are fears that this is going to lead to copycat attacks. The other is, in at least two of these cases, the Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attacks, and I think it raises fears about how much those kinds of groups are able now to operate in Israel. I also think it kind of raises a broader issue about um, the effect of these stalled peace talks, and they have been stalled for years. In in recent years, what we've seen is in the absence of talks about um, territory towards Palestinian statehood, instead we've seen the Israeli government try to um, shift towards um, giving economic um, um, benefits to the Palestinians. And it appears that those shifts, um, at least right now, have not been en- enough. The The last thing I would add is I, I think one of the reasons you're seeing some of these tensions, at least it's worth considering, were the talks that happened this week in which we saw four Arab nations uh, representatives in Israel largely talk about the nuclear deal with Iran. But I think for the Palestinians to see this much outreach going to the Israelis while efforts to address the issues that have been concerning to them for decades, I think added to those tensions. And so we will see if the security measures that the Israelis are putting in place are enough to sort of quell this um, uh, surprising spike in violence across Israel. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan remains defiant. On Thursday, he told the nation that he has no plans to resign, even as he faces a no-confidence vote in parliament expected this weekend. And the country's opposition says it has the numbers to push him out. So, Amy, before we get in too deep, uh, remind us about Imran Khan. Who is he? How long has he been in power? And why is political instability here something that people are worrying about a lot? So Imran Khan was a former cricketer turned politician who was elected in 2018 um, in many ways thanks to the backing of the the very powerful Pakistani military. Um, Pakistan's military has ruled the country for half of its existence, essentially. Um, And that's significant because it gets to the... um, 
the current point, the current of today of, of, of why he is facing this motion of no confidence. But he was elected on a platform of anti-corruption. He was a very popular figure, as a very well-known cricketer. Um, but uh, it was really this rift with the, with the military, which I think set the ball rolling on um uh, on this on this no confidence vote that we're we're seeing in the coming days, it's it's not entirely clear where this rift came from. But many analysts point to a dispute over who to appoint as head of the of the leaders uh, power, of the country's very uh, powerful intelligence services, the ISI, which means which seems to have been the roots of that rift. And once the military withdrew their support for for Imran Khan, it was open season for uh, for opposition for opposition parties to try and make moves against him. Now, Robert, as Amy alluded to, uh, to millions, uh, Khan is seen as a sporting hero, but not necessarily a political one. Can you tell us why? Well, I mean, cricket is, you know, is the great sport of, of Pakistan. So anybody with that uh, background as one of the great, uh, great cricketers of, of in Pakistan's uh, storied uh, experience on the cricket field will will know why that you know why he appealed um to so many in pakistan and as amy says also running on a anti-corruption campaign but what's interesting about this as well is just as amy was alluding to is is it's a murky business because imran khan is also alleging that a foreign country potentially as he first suggested america was trying to remove him from power and so you know, amid all of the kind of political uh, negotiations and maneuverings going on in Islamabad, there is also the question of the sort of diplomatic game being played. You know, did the United States have uh, a stake in trying to remove him from power? It appears not. It appears that Imran Khan is simply using that as a political tactic. But it is a, you know, it is a, a comment on the fact that Imran Khan and, and President Biden not only haven't met but to the best of my knowledge, they haven't even spoken, which is extraordinary given the centrality of a nuclear-armed Pakistan on, on international security uh, and given the, the sort of combined interest in Afghanistan. So it is a comment again about how um, US-Pakistan relations are once more unbelievably, unbelievably rocky as we head into this weekend's uh, crucial uh, uh, decision uh, when we will we'll realize whether he wins his no confidence vote that I think is scheduled for for Sunday. Yeah, and on that note, uh, this week Khan said that America wants him quote gone and everything would be forgiven. Nancy, what was he talking about there? Well, it's not clear. I mean, he has sort of looked for outside forces to blame for um, the situation that he finds himself in. And and at his speech, he waved this piece of paper around, as you mentioned, and doesn't actually say who. But, you know, there have been tensions between Khan and the United States. I think we noticed it was most pronounced immediately after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, where Khan was seemingly uh, embracing um, the very Taliban that the U.S. had spent two decades fighting. And again, in the run-up to the war in Ukraine, when Khan was visiting with Putin on the day of the invasion. And so there has been a sort of outward displays by Khan of his um, um, distancing from U.S. positions. What's interesting to me is, you know, there's been no Pakistani prime minister in history who's completed a five-year term. And while we've had two others at least face these kinds of votes from parliament, this is the first time it could be successful. And in that instance, I think really what at stake is 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 how Pakistanis view democracy itself because of 
um, somebody as popular as him, as celebrated as him, to to fall so quickly, particularly when he ran on a platform, as my colleagues have mentioned, of anti-corruption. And so I think um, it really portends for, um, a, if, if it in fact happens, um, a period of um, potential um, uncertainty vis-a-vis Pakistan at, at a very critical time when we think about um, the, the war, the the. Uh, U.S. position towards Afghanistan, when we think about a, a nuclear-armed Pakistan that, as Robert pointed out, so far hasn't had any sort of, it's not good or bad relations, but no clear relationship with the United States. On to an issue that is very much both domestic and international, that is the coronavirus pandemic. Two years in, it's still far from over. And Shanghai, China's largest and wealthiest city, is in the midst of a surge and another shutdown. It affects about 26 million people. Now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a former FDA commissioner, this week cast doubt on this latest crackdown in China. This is what he told CNBC. This was always a difficult proposition for China to maintain this zero COVID policy. And they didn't use the time that they had well. 50 percent of the population over the age of 65 isn't uh, boosted, isn't vaccinated. They haven't deployed vaccines effectively among their older population. They certainly haven't boosted their older population. They've deployed vaccines that are proving to be less effective against Omicron. So I think it's going to be a very difficult circumstance there. Amy, how are the city's residents responding? Um, It must be tiresome, I would think, to go through another lockdown two years later. And yet China has approached this very differently. So maybe maybe the response is different there. Well, there's been a lot of reports of, of, of panic buying going on um, in response to some confusion about about these reports, and um, you know, and as we heard in, in the in the clip before the section, that there's I think there's been particular difficulty with with older people. My my colleague James Palmer, who writes our weekly China Brief this week, reported that you know old older people have been having difficulties getting food because they've been told to use these apps like WeChat to order them, and of course you know, being older, it's a little bit more difficult for them to use these apps. And so it's, you know, there has been a lot of confusion, a little bit of chaos around these lockdowns, but it's been, you know, it's kind of, uh, everything is kind of topsy-turvy with China and COVID. You know, they, of course, it, you know, originated in Wuhan and they, they experienced the first uh, major lockdowns in the world. And, and, you know, ironically, when we were all going through waves of lockdowns and COVID, you know, cases in China were relatively low. And now as we're kind of emerging and in the Western world, cases are are building again. But one thing that is kind of lingering in the back of my mind amidst all of this is that, you know, given the size of the Chinese population, um, their reliance on domestic vaccines, which are not as effective, um, difficulties in in, in getting the vaccine out to older parts of the population, um, you know, that raises serious questions about the potential for new variants to emerge, just given the, how we know about how this this virus mutates, the longer it is out there and, and the more that it spreads. And so I think there's real, re- real reason for global concern, um, given these surges that we're seeing in China right now. Nancy, Robert mentioned uh, the, the Shanghai Tesla factory extending its production halt in the wake of this lockdown. What is the economic impact of the lockdown, both on China's economy and, you know, more broadly, globally? Well, we'll start with China. Remember, Shanghai accounts for roughly 4% of China's total economic output. That's a huge figure in out of one city. This is sort of the financial um, hub of China. And now you have businesses like Tesla shutting down. 
and even smaller businesses, you're seeing uh, re- residents l- sleeping at the business so that they can um, keep their businesses open. And you can imagine the impact of that just psychologically and also economically, right? You, there's, there, there cannot but be an, a severe economic impact when your citizens are living in an environment where at any point their, their business could be shut down for a matter of days. And you can imagine the ripple effects of that on, on China and across, across the world. Broadly, um, China's key to um, um, production and and when these sort of uh, unexpected shutdowns happen, I think we've seen in the past and could see again effects on supply chain issues because um, the the sort of engineering behind supply chain demands sort of long-term planning and the way that China's going about um, tackling COVID um, doesn't allow for that. And finally, I would note that you know, this is at a time where we're dealing with variants, as Amy pointed out, and each one so far has been more contagious than the past. Um, the latest one is uh, BA2 is more about 30% more contagious than Omicron. And so the question becomes economically, is it sustainable mm-hmm. to to continue to shut down business when when something that could be that contagious can erupt that quickly? And so I think mm-hmm. all of that really uh, it has a potential to shape China economically um, but also, it has second and third or, order effects uh, on the world economy. Right. In the last few minutes that we have left here, I want to turn to each of you to talk about some of the stories you're watching this week. And Robert, I want to start with you because I know you must be watching what's happening with Putin closely. You're the author of a book about Putin, A Time to Die, The Untold Story of the Kursk Tragedy. I wonder, uh, with your perspective as someone who's written deeply about this in the past, what are you noticing and what are you watching this week? Yeah, I'm particularly intrigued, as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, about the sort of flows of information within Russia. You know, one of the notable things back in 2000, during the Kursk tragedy, that was the submarine disaster in which 118 sailors, Russian sailors, lost their lives, is how at that moment there was in Russia, in those early days of President Putin, a serious sort of investigative journalism branch to uh, Russian reporting. And there was also civil society, all of whom were outraged by the conduct of the Northern Fleet admirals and of President Putin in those in those days, and they were a sort of a vocal and powerful and passionate group uh, demanding sort of international rescue efforts for their loved ones, loved ones aboard the Kursk. And what's notable to me now is how, you know, without civil society, without any investigative journalism, all of which has been crushed by President Putin, how there is now an information vacuum in Russia that is serving no one well, least of all the Commander-in-Chief Vladimir Putin. So it's a reminder why societies need investigative journalism, why they need civil society, why they need an active uh, citizenry, really. And all of that is absent now from Russia. So I'll be looking at that and and trying to draw through the threads of of how that's going to impact uh, the Ukraine campaign. Amy McKinnon with Foreign Policy, I'll turn to you next. What What do you have your eye on at the moment? Well, one of the things my colleagues and I have been looking at this week is is these emerging reports of truly horrific atrocities being committed in Ukraine by Russian troops. Um, there are widespread allegations of um, of sexual assaults, of of arbitrary arrests, of people being disappeared, of people being, uh, in some cases, alleged to have even been forcibly deported to Russia. Um, all of that in the context of a conflict is proving very difficult to uh, to nail down and 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 kind of verify. That's not to say that 
um, these things aren't happening. Um, unfortunately, this is a, a pretty known tactic of Russia's MO in wartime. Um, but getting verifiable information from the ground in the midst of a war is difficult, but we are starting to see a very sinister picture emerging of what Russian forces have been doing, and I really do fear that it is only the tip of the iceberg. Nancy, same question for you in about 45 seconds or so. Thank you. So the one of the things we talked about earlier in the show is about Syrians going to Russia to fight. But one of the things I'm interested in is how some of the food supply issues that have been born out of this war are shaping potentially the politics of the Middle East. We've seen the effect on the economy there. But I, I think uh, in the weeks ahead, I'm, I'm, I want to make sure I follow and I'm attentive to how the second and third order effects of this war could be shaping other regions like the Middle East. Could it lead to political, the, the, could the inc- economic instability in the Middle East trigger political instability? Because I think so often we think about the war within Ukraine and Russia, and, and my goodness, that's where the focus should be. But the longer this goes on, the more likely the ripple effects will hit other regions that perhaps we don't think of as tied to this war, but really are directly impacted by what's happening in Ukraine. Many thanks to Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, Amy McKinnon, who covers national security for foreign affairs and is an occasional podcast host, and Robert Moore of ITV News, award-winning Washington correspondent and author of the book A Time to Die, The Untold Story of the Kursk Tragedy. 1A's senior producer is Jonklin Hill. Our managing producer is Paige Osborne. Big thanks to Kenny Pirog, who has been our fantastic engineer this week, and Barb Anguiano, who produces the 1A podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon. Jen White will be back on Monday. This is 1A.